Welcome to the Colon Cancer Podcast, stories of struggle, hope, and survival in the face of colorectal cancer. I'm Lee Silverstein. Welcome to episode 16 of the Colon Cancer Podcast. My guest this week is Dr. Robin McGee. Robin is a clinical psychologist that lives in Nova Scotia in the northeast part of Canada. She is the author of the book, The Cancer Olympics, where she talks about not only her battle with rectal cancer, but the incredible hurdles that she faced dealing with misdiagnosis and the challenges she dealt with dealing with the government-run healthcare program in the province of Nova Scotia. Join me now for my conversation with Dr. Robin McGee. Robin, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Thank you for having me. Well, I appreciate you making the time to share your quite interesting story. Uh, For our listeners, uh, you're the first person that I've spoken to that is not based in the U.S. So tell everybody where you're located. I live in Nova Scotia, Canada, which is uh, the East Coast province. Uh, It's north of Maine. It's not often that I speak to someone that they're an hour ahead of me because I'm on the East Coast. I'm used to dealing with people that are behind me. So uh, so thanks for the little geography lesson. So t- before we get into the, 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 the guts of your story, for pardon the pun, tell me a little bit uh, from just from the health perspective about when you started to realize that there may, might be something wrong uh, leading up to uh, your journey through your, di- just up to your diagnosis. Well, uh, I have an immediate family of colorectal cancer. My mom had had it uh, when she was 68, and I was 46 uh, when I first uh, started to notice rectal bleeding. (laughs) So I was 46 when I first started to notice rectal bleeding, and I went to uh, a person I'll call doctor number one who told me it was an antibiotic reaction. And then I went to see Dr. Kitka continued. I went to see Dr. Number Two. Dr. Two told me it was an antibiotic reaction. Um, then I uh, saw another family physician, Dr. Three. That person told me it was the bowel equivalent of a nosebleed. And then uh, um, in all of this, uh, no one ever used the C word at any time with me at any time. And um, through there was many, many... Um, um, missteps, mistakes, mistakes, delays, omissions, whatever. Ultimately, I saw a fourth person, a general surgeon, who uh, gave me the opinion it was a uh, mere inflammation um, and nothing to worry about. But uh, anyway, it took, uh, as you know, as many of uh, you and your listeners will know, that uh, re- rectal bleeding is an alarm symptom for colorectal cancer. And when present, it should be investigated by endoscopy within 60 days by practice guidelines throughout Canada, the United States. But um, in my case, it took 661 days to get the diagnosis, the diagnostic endoscopy, which revealed by then a stage 3C cancer, rectal cancer. So So, if I do the math uh, real quick in my head, that's a little more than a year and a half. No, two years. Two years. Okay. Two years. From the day that I walked into Dr. One's office with an alarm symptom for colorectal cancer to the day that I started cancer treatments was two years to the day. And tell me about the doctor that finally made the diagnosis and what happened then. 
Well, <laughs> that was unfortunately the fourth doctor, the general surgeon who had been telling me that it was nothing. I was saying, I was insisting that uh, that we proceed with endoscopy. She didn't think that was warranted. Um, so, uh, so with my persistence, that that occurred. But of course, by then. Um, it had progressed to a very late stage. So I quickly got another surgeon, a better surgeon, and um, and was saved ultimately by that person. So um, doctors, uh, my opinion that my care was terrible is simply not just my opinion. Um, I had the case investigated by the College of Physicians and Surgeons, which would be the Canadian equivalent of a medical uh, board in the United States. And uh, through the course of the investigation, numerous uh, problems in the practices and um, quality of care, standard of care were revealed in each of the four doctors. Um, But ultimately, three of the four doctors on my diagnostic pathway were disciplined by the college for egregious negligence in my case. That is fascinating to me. I, I speak to many young survivors who have a similar experience. Oh, you're too young for colon cancer. And this goes on for several years. Yours is the first I've heard where the patient uh, sort, uh, excuse me, sought some sort of recourse. Well, yeah, and, and, and I've kind of been on a mission since then to improve accountability in this whole area of diagnosis and detection, uh, because uh, after an outcome like that, it's sort of my mission in life now to make sure that no one um, ends up with an outcome like mine because of care like that. Sure. So, so tell me when it was ultimately diagnosed as colon cancer, what was your initial reaction? Well, I was uh, stunned, as you can imagine, and very, very betrayed because doctors two and three in that pathway were not just doctors. They were colleagues, close colleagues that I'd worked with uh, closely over the years. We'd had many cases in common. I'm a registered clinical psychologist in my day job. And uh, when I'm not a crazy uh, cancer crusader, I'm a psychologist. And so I, um, you know, these are these were two people that I I thought would would uh, would take my life seriously, but, but they didn't. Hmm. And you mentioned endoscopy. There was no colonoscopy involved? No. Well, I, I would be happy with any kind of it. I would have been happy with any kind of endoscopy had I had a sigmoid scope or a proctoscope or any scope. It was a rectal cancer would have been detected. Uh, right away. But uh, yeah, no, it took 661 days to get a colonoscopy. Disturbingly, one of the things that was true of my case was that Dr. Four, the general surgeon, was insisting that it took two years to get a colonoscopy at my age with my symptoms, with my family history. But uh, I was very uh, disturbed to discover after, heartbroken really, to discover that as soon as I was diagnosed, I learned that other people People in their 20s in my community were getting scopes within weeks of their symptom onset by other doctors. So she had an egregiously long wait list, but no one else in our community did. And there was no reason for me to wait that kind of time. So once you were diagnosed, what was the prescribed treatment plan? In my case, I had chemo radiation concurrently, 28 days. Then um, a total mesorectal excision surgery. So I had to lose the whole body part. 
uh, there was a whole, <laughs> like many of your uh, your uh, people that you've spoken to in the podcast, complications and difficulties uh, along that path, obstruction in hospital, vomiting, all kinds of dreadful things. Then the next uh, big piece, of course, then is adjuvant chemotherapy after that. And that's where my story uh, becomes interesting again in the sense that in my province of Nova Scotia, and this is 2010, Oxaliplatin, which, as you know, is a, a fundamentally um, valued agent in, in combating colorectal cancer, was not available for rectal cancer in my province in 2010. And um, I was shocked and horrified to discover that this treatment, full FOX chemotherapy or, or KPOX now, um, that therapy is available everywhere else, all through the United States, Europe, many, many, many other Canadian provinces, but it was not in the formulary for uh, Nova Scotia. So uh, some of your listeners might know that Canadian healthcare is socialized so that in health Canada, we're, we don't have insurance companies that we pay who then pay for our treatment. Our, our government um, um, has experts who determine what treatments are, uh, are to be endorsed. And uh, and then it's free. All Canadian citizens act, can access uh, their health care for free. Um, so that's that's how it works here in Canada. But the um, problem is, if it's if the if this if it's not in the formulary, you can't access it. So um, what I did then was uh, I had been when I was first diagnosed, I was so um, uh, totally devastated as you. You know, I'd had uh, I'd been uh, I'd had maybe five sick days my entire working life up to that point, and I was a fit, healthy person who worked out every day, played soccer for like seventeen years. I really, really was a person who was quite, quite conscious of health. I know you've heard this before, Lee. I've heard it on your other <laughs> podcast. Many, many, many of us uh, say, "How can this happen to me?" I was so conscientious, but sure. anyway. The uh, it did happen, and uh, uh, the the um, I reached out to my friends in my community because I kind of basically it was it was you you go home this afternoon you are your life as a working person is over this afternoon go home and you know figure out how, what you're going to do about your patients figure out what you're going to do about the uh, the school and the community and all your friends and family because you're you're forty six years old and you're working 48 years old. I was 48 at point of diagnosis. And I said, you know, you're, you're, you're done. You won't work again. Um, and so I, uh, so I was all alone. I was alone at home and, uh, I started, um, a blog then called Robin's cancer Olympics based on this metaphor of a friend had sent me a card and she said, Oh, Robin, you're going to win the Olympics in uh, the chemotherapy, radiation and surgery events, you know, go for the gold. <laughs> She's, so she said that, and I uh, um, started a blog called Robin's Cancer Olympics, to which people then responded uh, with warm uh, messages saying, oh, no, no, you're going to go for the gold on the podium. You'll make it all these nice and lovely things. Anyway, I relied on that that uh, audience. They were my connection to humanity and human life as I was pretty much isolated for for the next two years. So I, um, however, when we discovered, when I discovered that the best practice chemotherapy wasn't available in my province, I reached out to that same community 
community. And I said to them, let's all lobby the Minister of Health. This has got to change. This has got to change in our province. And so they did. So uh, uh, the Minister of Health got um, dozens and dozens and dozens of, uh, of letters. And then what happened then is uh, uh, the... Um, the opposition, the, the government uh, has, uh, has, as you know, in Canada, we have a sort of a parliamentary system. So we have uh, one side and then the opposite side in the in our House of, uh, in our legislature. And in the legislature of my province, the opposite side took up thy cause and, and then they became uh, my champions. And uh, so we lobbied and lobbied and lobbied and lobbied and lobbied. And this, uh, uh, the oncology community in the province had been desperate for oxaliplatin to be endorsed for rectal cancer. Um, it had been endorsed already for colon cancer, just not rectal cancer, which they knew uh, was unfair and needed to change. And so uh, when this sort of political foo came up, <laughs> the oncologists <laughs> saw it as an opportunity to jump on it. And they and my, uh, my own personal oncologist at the time pushed th- it through the expert committees involved. He's the head of, of oncology in, in, our, in our province. And he pushed it through to uh, the various committees, expert committees. And so it, we, I can proud to say that my community and I were successful in getting oxaliplatin endorsed uh, in Nova Scotia. Unfortunately, too late for me to receive it. So I never did get it. But um, but I can tell you proudly that since that time, over 300 Nova Scotians uh, have had uh, access to that best chance at cure. Um, we're a little tiny province, not even a million people. So, But the rate of colorectal cancer here is, uh, you know, it's three people every day are diagnosed with, with uh, colorectal cancer in Nova Scotia. So um, many people have had a, have had the chance to uh, have a, a better outcomes as a result of all that lobbying. And um, then I also concurrently through all that treatment um, persisted in um, having the uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons investigate the care I received. And then the doctors in question were uh, were disciplined. So there was uh, some vindication there as well. And uh Anyway, what I had done with all that story, it was so, um, so, uh, so Hollywood, <laughs> back to Hollywood. Um, it was so Hollywood that I decided I, I should write a, a book about it. So I wrote a book about that experience called uh, the Cancer Olympics. And it, it, it's written in the first person present tense, like I am holding a picture of my tumor. Uh, not I held one, I'm holding one. So it tells it as it really unfolds, because I thought that that, um, that kind of voice would best represent the desperation of, uh, of a patient begging for a life-saving therapy they can't access. And what's that, what does that feel like? What is that like? And what's it like to go through cancer, even for ordinary people to understand what it is to not have that crystal ball and not know if you're going to make it to the next Christmas or the one after that or any of this. And I love the picture of you uh, in front of the hurdles. What 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 could be more poignant and symbolic than facing hurdles uh, like uh, you did? it's interesting that people who have not had cancer will go, oh, that's good. That's an interesting cover, book cover. But people who have had cancer go, oh, my God, that's exactly what it's like. That's exactly what it's like. The infinite hurdles that go off into the distance and you can't see the end. Well, not just your personal <laughs> hurdles in your own battle to uh, survive the disease and thrive through it, but the hurdles that you had to jump over to uh, lobby the government to make this change. 
Yes, and so uh, uh, and, and since that, since the days, uh, the, the sort of epilogue of the story and epilogue of the book is that since that time, since entering remission, I've really moved on into patient advocacy um, for colorectal cancer specifically, but for for all patients generally. Um, so, in, with respect to uh, colorectal cancer, um, there's a government arm in our uh, province called uh, Cancer Care Nova Scotia. Each Canadian province has a cancer care. Um, arm. And uh, so with Cancer Care Nova Scotia had uh, started an oversight committee aimed at the development of, of, of improving the standards of care and actually applying standards of care, not guidelines, standards. So your imaging must happen within two weeks of your diagnosis, that kind of a standard, timeline standards and quality standards. So I, of course, was all over that. So I signed up to be uh, involved in those committees, and I've since been on five working groups aimed at, um, at improving standards of care, patient engagement, patient education, all kinds of, uh, of things to try and make, um, uh, give people a, a better experience. And uh, But I, for me, the most important committee that I've served on is one related to detection and diagnosis of colorectal cancer. As you can imagine, that's where my heart really is. I really want there to be standards and solid guidelines for family physicians and uh, and uh, surgeons and GI specialists of all kinds regarding when and how is are people diagnosed, when and how are people informed of their diagnosis, what is the appropriate communication between the doctor or the patient and uh, the doctors with each other. Oh, yeah. so, and it's so needed. It's so needed, particularly in this country as well. Um, what I wanted to ask you, Robin, is your story echoes so much of what I hear from many people and read about online is this acceptance of whatever the doctor says. And I, I see people in the Colon Cancer Alliance now branded as Blue Hope Nation Facebook group of people asking, gee, do you think maybe I should get a second opinion? I want to jump through the screen and go, yes. Yes, yes. So, so what's your message, Robin, to those people that might be listening, who they themselves or someone they care about has gotten a diagnosis that they're just not really sure about? And how do we get people that comfort level to guess, speak up, be an advocate for yourself and 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 you know find that second opinion and ask the right questions uh the um i'd like to say be persistent but i was persistent and persistence wasn't enough um what uh what uh what, what I want to say to um, what I want to say to prospective patients is is to get as informed as you possibly can because the informed patient is the safer patient and I'm going to say that again the informed patient is the safer patient if you suspect that you have colorectal cancer do not hesitate do not wait do not oh I'll go to I'll go to, I'll go to Florida and visit Lee I'll go to I'll go on a trip and I'll figure it out in six months you don't have six months you may not have six months you've got to get on this and uh and uh many people i know hesitate around scopes and uh the uh, occult blood tests and so on thinking they're shameful or embarrassing but uh, i think you and i and many people who are on this podcast can say that nothing competes with the humiliation degradation and embarrassment of colorectal cancer so that really Get screened, get screened, get screened is my message to every 
uh, every, but every individual over 50, in fact, every individual over 40, all other cancer screening begins at 40, mammography and others begin at 40. Um, and, and I'm with your other guest, Don Iker, and I, and I said, I want to have um, earlier, I want an earlier screening age to be set and um, certainly Certainly, uh, I want the importance of, a, of an immediate family history to be acknowledged uh, among uh, medical professionals. Many professionals, medical professionals, still insist that someone has to have two immediate family members before they're at increased risk for colorectal cancer, and the data just doesn't support that. What's more, social demographics are such that many of us don't have large families anymore. Don't, we don't come from families of, sure, of seven. Sure. I do. So that you don't have a sibling necessarily to uh, to to be your counterpart. So my uh, my uh, uh, if you have a family history be vigilant if you even if you don't have a family history be vigilant and um, I, you know I, I had excellent cancer care I had uh, heroic cancer care from some of my cancer treatment providers so I'm not saying don't trust doctors some doctor some doctors the doctors I've met who I've worked with on these advocacy committees and these working groups have been models of integrity and um, and vision around improved patient care so but I'm, I'm going to say that uh, that you know your body you know your own body and if you're not if you're hearing an answer that does not make sense to you keep going great advice uh, I wish more people would would heed it but I guess that's the reason why we're doing what we're doing right now is to get that word out there I interviewed Georgia Hurst who runs a blog called I have Lynch syndrome yes I know Georgia yes okay so and Georgia had a wonderful idea because we were talking about family history and so many people don't know their family history. And she said, well, isn't the holidays the perfect time to get that information when people tend to be around the greatest number of family members, that that's an important thing to have uh, to, that's a per, per, the perfect time to gather that information because it's, I went through it personally. I didn't find out till after I was diagnosed. Oh, my maternal grandfather passed away from colon cancer and he had a sister who passed away. From, yes. I'm like, hey, would have been nice to know that before I got diagnosed. So uh, the importance of family history, I I could just echo what you just said. And, but we've got to give people the education on how important it is. And, and uh, the holidays is a great time to get that information. Yes. And and not just people, but medical professionals as well. Uh, What I I guess what I'm, what I discovered and I've learned and I've experienced since and in many uh, instances is that even physicians do not understand the, the importance or relevance of a family history of colorectal cancer. So uh, that's surprising to us, to you and I, because we're so committed to the screening world and to, we think that's kind of, isn't that just a known thing, but you'd be shocked at how many family doctors do not know that. It's true. It's true. Well, as I wrap up with you, Robin, uh, the question I want to ask you is one that I ask all my guests and the answers tend to be, have some similarity, but they all tend to have a little bit of a different twist as well. And that is that someone listening to our conversation, they themselves or someone they care deeply about may have recently gotten the news uh, of a colon cancer or colorectal cancer diagnosis. What message would you like to share with that individual? 
What I uh, what I found that helped me to endure and survive was connecting uh, with my community. So not just family. Now, many people who've been recently diagnosed want to sort of crawl away in a hole and lick their wounds and they don't want people to know and they don't want to reach out. So there may be some personality differences here. But what I uh, have found was that the support of uh, friends, family, community, in addition to to one's to one's core family was uh, was really essential to me in uh, in not feeling so alone and in moving forward and and, um, sort of just to sort of bring this full circle um, this as I say I started this blog saying calling it Robin's Cancer Olympics and then just a couple of months ago the Canadian Cancer Society uh, awarded me uh, what they describe as their highest honor which is their National Medal of Courage and it was a gold medal (laughs) (laughs) so when I uh, I got to stand up on that podium and I got to say I you know, community, community, my Robbins Cancer Olympic community, I did it. I got the gold medal in the Cancer Olympics at the end, at the end of the day. And uh, it makes me emotional to think about that. Anyway, they, uh, they were just over the moon. They were also, so, uh, you know, I guess I just want to say that uh, uh, supportive community and even online support you know, because in your cancer, your chemotherapy, surgery, you can't be necessarily out walking around in your neighborhood, but you can be online. And that's a gift that the Internet brings to us, uh, just as uh, this podcast is a gift. We can connect with each other uh, across many miles and uh, use your technology. Stay connected. Go uh, uh, get connected with with uh, with communities like Colon Town or others, because there's no substitute for the supportive voices of other people. And I. I also, I'm just going to add one little, one other little thing here while I can, Lee. Just uh, not only did the, the, did I get this medal, this gold medal for the um, for my for my Cancer Olympics, which kind of brought closure to it, but I just discovered just a couple of weeks ago that my book, The Cancer Olympics, was uh, is a finalist, an international book award finalist. So out of uh, 1,200 books uh, across 15 countries. It was one of the finalists in this international book competition that was um, where the results were announced in Los Angeles just last week. And so um, so not only do I feel like, gee, I was able to get this medal and say to my community, look, that's great. But now it's like internationally, this book's been recognized. The story's been recognized internationally. So, you know, you never know where your story, your story's going to go and how it's going to end up. And that I guess I want to say to whoever's out there, I want to say go for the gold. I love that. And for people that would like to get a hold of this award-winning book, congratulations. Where can they find it, Robin? It's on Amazon. It's on uh, iTunes. It's on Kindle. It's on all the regular, all the regular, uh, all the usual Barnes and Noble, all the usual uh, booksellers. Great. Uh, I'll post, I'll post a link to the book with a photo of the cover on the posting that goes along with this podcast on our website at the colon cancer podcast.com. That's great. Thanks. I appreciate that. And, uh, and, um, you know, uh, the other thing I need to, one last thing I want to say, and this is a, by way of hope, when I was first uh, 
diagnosed in 2010, the survival rate, uh, published survival rate for my stage and kind of cancer in those days was only about 33%. Actually, at one point, they thought I had a 4% chance of survival. But um, then, uh, but I can say that, you know, with the modern advances out there that are out, that was 2010, 2014, new stats were published. They're on the American Cancer Society website seeing my stage of cancer, rectal cancer 3C now has a 70% chance of survival. So uh, that's the other message I want people to hear is that research advances, treatment advances, advances for, uh, especially in the treatment of stage four disease, survival rates are, well, what is that? That's like a, that's a 50, 50%, more than 50% survival improvement in, in five, four, five years. So it's getting better uh, for, uh, for us out there. Absolutely. Well, Robin, thank you again for making time from your busy schedule to share your fascinating story. I wish you continued success, more importantly, continued good health. And thanks again <laughs> for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much, Lee. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Colon Cancer Podcast. Notes from this episode can be found on our website at thecoloncancerpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on our website, on iTunes, or on the Stitcher app for listeners using an Android device. If you or a loved one has a question about colon cancer, please visit the Colon Cancer Alliance website at www.ccalliance.org. Again, that's www. .ccalliance.org. You can also email your questions to us at info at the colon Thanks again for listening. Be well, everyone.